Let me start this morning with a very scientific poll uh, question. It's one question. It's very easy. It's pass-fail. No, it's not really pass-fail. Uh, how many of you uh, like or grew up watching cartoons? Yeah, you like cartoons. Yeah, it's, if you don't, you know, uh, uh, there's no hope for you. Yeah, some of us still watch cartoons, even though cartoons now are kind of weird, I think. You ever realize that? The cartoons you grew up with are awesome, whatever they are. Whatever generation you grew up, they're cool. And then the one, the generation after you are weird. So the ones that I like, if you're older than me, you probably think that dude is, that's, he's messed up because he liked that cartoon. You know, he liked Bobby's World. You remember Bobby's World? Love that show. That was before Howie Mandel, I knew who Howie Mandel was when he had hair, right? Uh, that was a cool show. Anyway, Power Rangers doesn't really count as a cartoon, but I still liked it. I think it's still on in some version today, 25 years later. It's crazy, but it is. So cartoons are cool. Uh, one of the most famous uh, cartoon duos of all time is Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner. So they are always getting into it, right? So the, it, you know the, the, how it goes. The coyote's always trying to set traps for the roadrunner. And no matter how well thought out, which it, it's not always well thought out, uh, no matter how awesome the plan is, no matter how foolproof it is, he always finds a way to mess it up. Or the roadrunner always finds a way to avoid the trap. So no matter what he tries, it never works. The trap he sets is never good enough. It's never strong enough, never smart enough. Uh, he's just too fast, too good for the coyote. So we've been in this series the last four weeks called Faith, and it's, we were talking about uh, faith and how powerful it can be. What we're going to do this week is start a three-week follow-up series to that, which kind of flips the idea on its head. So we're going to talk for the next three weeks about faith traps. So things that we talked about last week, this is going to be sort of roadblocks to seeing that realized in your life. Uh, obstacles that might be in your way to keep you from exercising your faith, giving faith a chance, or even waiting long enough to see the results of faith. So faith traps, basically, they keep you from being who you are meant to be and doing what you're meant to do. No matter what kind of category, we're going to look at three different ones in the next three weeks. No matter what kind it is, uh, it's going to keep you from being who you are meant to be and keep you from doing what you're meant to do. And a few things about faith traps in general is we are all susceptible to them. There's no one that is immune from really any of these because we're human. So we're all susceptible to them. And in most cases, if not all cases, these faith traps are very subtle. Uh, because They're called traps for a reason. It's so the coyote tries to be very sneaky when he sets the trap. He tries to make it around a corner, you know, or make it in a certain spot. It's like you're not, he doesn't put a sign saying trap ahead. He doesn't do that, it, so he's trying to catch him off guard. That's what these faith traps will try to do for us or to us is catch us off guard, catch us in a vulnerable moment, wear us down in some cases. So we're susceptible to them. They can be very subtle, but every time if we give in to them, they will sabotage our lives. Every time we give in to a faith trap or are tripped up or caught in a faith trap, it will sabotage our lives, present and future. So what I want to do with this series is simply help us to learn how to be more like the roadrunner. The traps are there. You can't, you can't always, you know, you have sometimes he, you saw he goes through them. Most of them he goes through them, but he makes it on the other side. And so we, I want us to learn to be more like the roadrunner, to know that traps are going to be there. We are susceptible to them. They are subtle. If we give in, they will sabotage us, but there is, a other, there is an other side to these traps if we will not get caught in them. So today we're going to look at the first of three faith traps, and today's uh, faith trap is what I call the what-if trap. 
the what-if trap. And we're going to start with this one this week because it parallels very closely. It combines closely with what we talked about last week. So we finished our series on faith last week by talking about taking the next step of faith in your life. Whatever it is that God's calling you to do with your life, by faith, he just wants us to simply take the next step to make the next move. Again, we don't want to get caught off guard by the big picture, by the enormity of it, but all God wants us to do by faith is take the next step. But this trap, the what-if trap, will keep us from doing that. It will prevent us from taking the next step and making the next move in our lives. So let me give you kind of an overall um, idea of what this faith trap looks like, and then we'll get into kind of the nuts and bolts of how it works so we can avoid it, kind of go across it, go through it without getting trapped in it, okay? So the sort of a definition or a description of this trap is this. The what-if trap keeps you from what could be because of what might be. The what-if trap keeps you from what could be in your life because of what might be out in the future in your life. And it's kind of like it's kind of like a treadmill. It's not this is not the best analogy because there are benefits to a treadmill, right? There are health benefits. But if you're trying to travel a certain distance and go from point A to point B, you don't want to hop on a treadmill to do that, do you? There's going to be a lot of activity, a lot of movement, a lot of motion, but no forward progress. A faith trap is like living on a treadmill. You're going to be constantly stuck in the same spot over and over, wondering why nothing's improved, nothing's changed, nothing's different. Well, we're if we give into this what-if trap, we stay in the same spot. We stay in the starting blocks of life or in the starting blocks of a big decision that's coming up or the starting blocks in a relationship that we're in. So the what-if trap will keep us from what could be because of what might be. It's sort of a, a, a paralysis trap, if you will. It freezes us from forward momentum and movement. So what we're going to do is look at two examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. And both of these men we've, we're going to talk about today, we talked about in our previous series. So we already know basically the end of the story, that they work through, some, through this trap. But we're going to see how difficult, how uh, difficult it was to get through this what-if trap for them. Okay, So we're going to look first at this man named Abram. Maybe you've heard of him before. Pretty important guy in the Bible, in Scripture. So Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, this is the first time that God ever appears to Abram. He just speaks to him out of nowhere. In verse 2 of Genesis 12, here's what God says. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Doesn't that sound amazing? I mean, what a promise that is. I will make you great. I will bless you. I will make your family blessed for generations. I will make you and your family a blessing to others for generation upon generation upon generation. There's a great promise here. There's a great reward here. But we skipped verse 1. So we're setting us up here with this cool thing of what could be, but here is what Abram is faced with what might be. Verse 1 of Genesis 12, the Lord has said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives. Now for some of us, you're like, yippity doo da. okay, I get to leave my relatives. That's awesome, right? Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I like to imagine this moment. 
I like to imagine Abram hearing God speak to him and give him this awesome reward with this risk, and then him trying to go pitch this to his wife. Just go with me for a second. Abram's out. He, hears this, he has this amazing spiritual experience with God. He hears God talk to him and promise him amazing things for generations to come. And then he walks back into the tent, and he says, Hey, Sarah, uh, guess what? I got this cool, this cool deal I was just given, a cool promise. I was just like, oh, really? Who are you talking to? Uh, God. <laughs> God spoke to me. Now, that's hard enough to imagine, but remember, let's talk about where Abram's from. Abram lives in a land called Ur of the Chaldees. That's ancient Babylon. So when God speaks to Abram, he is, more, he is more than likely spiritually two things. Either he serves no God or he serves many gods. Because that's, that's the differentiation between the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible, and any other movement at that time and most even today is there's only one of him. And he says, just serve me and me only. So Abram is probably, well, he's definitely living in a culture that serves multiple gods. And they don't usually talk to people. They have commands written down that you should honor them this way and serve them this way and bow in a certain way. And they'll do certain things if you don't behave and whatever. Uh, but God speaks to him personally and gives him this, uh, this really invitation to a new life. So he's got to get through all of this baggage with his wife who grew up in this same environment. So she's like, well, which God spoke to you? Well, he just said he was like the big G God. So I don't really know. You know I don't know what that means. I'm not sure. I don't know. He didn't really give me a name or address. He just spoke to me when I was outside, you know, had my morning coffee. And she's like, okay, okay, I'm going to try to push past this lunacy for a second, Abe. And just, okay, what did he say? You said it was amazing. It was incredible. What did he say? Well, he, here's what he said. He said he's going to make a great nation out of us. Doesn't that sound amazing? She's like, go on, you know. And he's like, he said we're going to be a blessing for generations to come. She's like, that sounds great. I don't know how it's going to happen, but that sounds amazing. So what's the catch? He said, well, the catch is uh, we have to move. She's like, move? Like, move where? Wherever God tells us to move. Like that's a that's a pretty big pitch to his wife here. God says, go, and I will show you where to go. That's all the info he has. I'm going to do all these amazing things in you and through you and because of you, but you have to pick up your tent and take all your stuff and all your family and just go, and I will show you where to go. I will tell you where to go, but you have to start going before I tell you. I don't, you don't have the final destination yet. You're just going to wander until I tell you to, to stop here. She's going to be like, Abe, honey. I like our neighborhood. Like, we just renovated the tent, dear. Like, we just got through, and you want us to now pack it all up and just wander through the desert? Are you kidding me? Have you had, is there something different in your coffee this morning, dear? Because that doesn't sound like you. This is weird. This is strange. She's got to work through this. And Abraham, Abraham's got to work through the, he's having, he said, I, I know, I've already asked the same questions to myself several times. I tried to ask God, what's up? And he just like won't talk to me anymore. And I'm just really confused, okay? So they have all these things working against them, all these what ifs working against them. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of risk. There are a lot of what ifs for Abram and Sarah and their family at this point in their lives. 
The second example of what ifs is in the New Testament, and it's another guy that you probably know a lot about that we've talked a lot about in a previous series. His name is Paul. He's also called Saul. So it's the same guy with two names, all right? So Saul is his Jewish, his Hebrew name. Paul is his Gentile name. So you see, when you read about Paul, first he's Saul. Even after he becomes a follower of Jesus, which we'll talk about in a second, he's still Saul for quite a while because he's still among Hebrews and Jews like him. When he goes to minister to non-Jews, he takes his non-Jewish name with him, really to gain credibility with them. So it's the same guy. So if I say Saul or Paul, I'm talking about the same guy, all right? So Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1, here's how we are introduced to Saul or Paul. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, just like God spoke to Abram, Jesus is going to speak to Saul. The voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. See some similarities here between Abram and Saul? In an instant, everything that Saul knows about his life has changed. Everything that he has committed his life to is now being turned upside down as far as he's concerned. He has this strange spiritual encounter with an eternal being all, all up by himself in the middle of the road. And the voice speaks to him, just like God spoke to Abram, and he gives him very little information. He's like, hey, Saul, I'm Jesus Stop killing and arresting my people. Become one of them. And then I want you to change your entire worldview. Go into the town you were going to anyway, and I'll tell you what to do when you get there. And by the way, it tells us that he's also blinded by the light. I'm not going to sing the song this morning, but he was. And so he somehow, I don't know if he had some dudes with him, I guess, that they didn't see this or know this, but somehow he got from where he was to Damascus blind. And then he waits for further instructions. Can you imagine where Saul is at this moment? Again, everything he knows, everything he learned, everything he believed in a moment was turned upside down. He had this religious experience, this spiritual experience that flipped his worldview upside down. And he's basically told, hey, what you were doing, you're on the wrong side of history is how they would say it today, okay? You're fighting the wrong fight, and so I need you to do something a little bit different, but I'm not going to give you the whole story just yet. you got to trust me. There's going to be a lot of questions for Saul, a lot of what-ifs for Saul. But the first question is, what if this was all sort of some other kind of experience and not real? Did this even really happen to me, or did I imagine this? Was it a dream? What if I'm going to base this point in my life as a pivot point on a dream? What if this was totally just an out there, maybe a drug-induced experience? I don't know what Paul said. He's struggling here. He's got to be internally wondering about how everything has been and how it's going to change. Then he's going to think, okay, if I do what I think I'm going to have to do, what are my friends going to say? 
Paul had quite a reputation in his community. He was highly respected as a Jewish official. He was a high-ranking Jewish official. He was the most educated of Jewish people living in that time. He had the greatest education, like Harvard, Stanford. He went there, had the best teacher in the world at that time, teaching him the things of Judaism. And now he's got to turn everything, and he's got to change everything. And what are his friends going to say? How are they going to react? Is he going to be shunned? Is he going to be rejected? What if they do that to him? What if he does this whole thing and no one believes in him? No one believes him. No one's like, oh, sure, I, you're the coyote, and you're setting the trap, and we're, I know how this works. We're the roadrunner. You're setting the bear trap because you're, oh, I love Jesus now. Yay. And, you, and once we gather together, you're going to call on your posse and arrest us and take us back to, I know what you're doing. What if that happens? Paul's got a lot of questions. He's got a lot to think about, a lot to consider, a lot of what ifs in his life. It's about seven years ago. Uh, nearly exact, probably almost exactly, I don't know the date, I didn't, I, I probably have it written down somewhere, but I don't know, about seven years ago that God kind of planted an idea, no pun intended, of starting a church, seven years ago, right around in October of that year, and so I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what this means, I'm not sure what to do with this, there's a lot of questions when you have this thing about, like, living life great, uh, doing, you know, doing ministry, loving life, family's doing great, nothing, no worries, no, and all of a sudden, God just plants this idea, hey, go start a brand new church somewhere, you know, it's like, hmm, there's some questions I got for you, God, I have a whole list, how much time do you have, thankfully, you're eternal, because we're going to be here a while, there's questions like, am I just disgruntled where I am right now, am I just itching to do something different, and I'm superimposing this idea of starting a new church into that, to fill that gap, and then you think about as we work through the process the next several months about, okay, God's really calling us to do this, and he's giving some more direction. Again, just I'm not saying I'm Abraham or Paul. I'm just saying God works the same way, okay? I'm just, so when God give, he gives you this idea, this thought, this maybe a sentence or a word, and then you've got to work with that. You've got to move on with that. And then as we did that, we're like, okay, God, we feel like we're in this and you're in this. Then he gives you a little bit more information. Okay, hey, I want you to go to this place and do this. Well, okay, that's not where we are right now. It means we have to pick up and move and leave. And God's like, just, that's all I'm going to tell you right now. So along the way, he gives you kind of the next step, the next phase. And there are what ifs at every stage of the journey. So then as we get kind of, we move, we move here without any jobs. Like I've said that before. I don't recommend that, but we did. We barely had a place to live. We found a place like two weeks before we moved here, you know, which was awesome. There's a lot of what ifs. What if we don't find jobs? What if we go broke before the church starts? What if the church starts and we still go broke? And I still ask that question all the time. No. What if no one gets on board with our vision of what we're trying to do? What if this thing just flops royally? There's all kinds of what ifs in any situation, including the starting of this church. Lots of what ifs along the way. And it started, seven, it's been seven years of what if after what if after what if. And I know in your life and in my life, it's not just stuff with the church that causes what-ifs, but I know in all of our lives, we have what-ifs all the time. Maybe you had this brilliant idea for this new product or new thing, and you're like, okay, I'm really working on it. I think it has some merit, but what if I tell my friends and they just laugh me out of the room? What, what if I put myself out there to try to be a friend to someone and I just get stabbed in the back by them? What if I'm vulnerable with my emotions and no one seems to care? We ask questions like this all the time. What if I take that new job and I hate it and then I'm stuck? What if this situation doesn't work out like the pamphlet said it would? What if I take a risk with this relationship and it just 
crumbles and I feel worse about myself than I did before? What if I try something and fail? What if I succeed but can't even handle success when it comes? What if I don't know what to do with all of this good stuff in my life? We ask what ifs all the time. Probably nearly on a daily basis, you're faced with some kind of what if. I would say definitely on probably a monthly basis, every few months, you're faced with some kind of big what if question in your life. The, the, the recipe for disaster is always there. The trap is always laid before us with these what ifs. But here's the problem with what ifs. The problem with what ifs is not the what if itself. The problem is letting the what ifs stop you. Okay, I'll say that again. The problem is not the what ifs. The problem is letting the what ifs stop you. There's a big difference there. The real risk is not what if I try and fail, but what if I never try at all? The real risk is not what if I do, but what if I don't? That's the real risk. That's the real problem with what ifs. So Abram, again, has this encounter with God. He speaks to him and says, hey, I'm going to make a great nation of you. You're going to bless other nations for generations to come. But there's a risk, several risks, like pack up everything you have and just start walking till I tell you to stop. All the what ifs that go into that. Genesis 12, verse 4, the very next verse after God speaks to him says this. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. That's his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So Abram had doubts, had fears, had unknowns, had questions, had all these what-ifs that he could not answer, had all these unknowns that he had no way of telling the future. But it, he did not let the what-ifs stop him from what God had for him. He refused. Paul, in a similar way, again, has doubts. His entire worldview is shuffled up and dealt. Like, his whole, everything he thinks about, everything religiously, which is his life, has now just, it's up in the air. His future is uncertain. All the what-ifs for Paul are there. And some of them that he probably had, he actually saw happen. So Acts chapter 9, he, so he's blinded on the road, he walks to Damascus, uh, a man named Ananias comes and prays for him to receive his sight, and then he says, hey, you're one of us now, brother Saul, and here's what happens. It says in, in a verse 19 of Acts chapter 9, the second half of verse 19 says, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching. I like that right there. So Saul didn't even allow the what-ifs to take root for the most part. He, he probably had them, but it says he didn't sit down for three months and try to make a plan. He didn't talk about, he didn't make a pros and cons list. It says immediately he just goes out. He doesn't give their chance for these what-ifs to take root in his heart, in his spirit. Immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? So when he starts doing this, the public is shocked because they, they've heard of his reputation. They know he's on the way with papers to arrest followers of Jesus. But yet when he comes, maybe a day or two late, right, uh, he comes and he's a different, he seems like a different kind of guy because he's not there to arrest them. He's preaching about Jesus to 
the Jews? Like, I don't, that doesn't make sense. So, understandably, they're a bit shocked. And then skip down to verse 26, another what if that he probably, he must have had, he, he witnessed. Acts 9, 26, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, all right, so the capital city of Christendom right now, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. So they did, they're not buying it. They see the trap. They see what you're doing, Saul, who, if that's even your real name. Like they, we're not, No, we're not going to sit here, and we're, we're not going to squat for you and just stay put and so you can round us up and take us away. We're not going to fall into the trap. I'm sure he thought that's a possibility, and it turned out to be true. It took him a while to kind of gain their trust, and you can understand why. It's kind of like, kind of Paul's experience made me think of like when, you, when I first started out preaching, uh, and you, you're just terrible at it which I'm not saying that 11 years later I'm much better. I'm just saying, when you do something for the very first time, like a comedian, and they go out there the first time and nobody laughs at their jokes, it's probably a little bit demoralizing. You probably have a lot of self-doubt now. You probably wonder, I don't know if I'm really cut out to do this. I don't know if this is my true calling or not. And Paul had the same experience. No one will listen. No one will believe him. He runs into the room and they run out, and he's probably like, yeah, I put on deodorant. I don't know what the deal is. I'm not sure what, what happened, but they just will not, they just won't stick around. And to some degree, Paul lived constantly with these what-ifs, with this self-doubt, with this insecurity. Because near the end of one of his letters, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, here's what he says about himself. He says, For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. So Paul, yes, who wrote half the New Testament, Paul lived with what-ifs, lived with self-doubt, lived with insecurity because of what his former life had been and how people are going to receive him and perceive him. So he lived, he knows what it is, to do that. But like Abram, Paul refused to let what-ifs keep him from God's plan for his life. He refused to let the questions and uncertainty and what-ifs that he had within him that were real, that were very strong within him, he refused to allow them to keep what could have been because of what might be. He refused to get caught in the faith trap. So here's the most important thing about this what-if trap. Most important thing about this what-if trap is this. Giving in to what-ifs will keep you from realizing your full potential. Okay? Giving in to what-ifs, getting trapped in this way, will keep you from realizing your full potential. Let's go back to Abram for a second. What if Abram had given in to his what-ifs? The promise that God had for him in verses 2 and 3 Never happened. He's a footnote in history. No one remembers his name. What God had designed for him never happened because he sat back in his what-ifs on the treadmill of life. Well, I don't know about this, and what about that, and what if this, and he just doesn't make a move, and God's like, I can't work with this because you're just standing there, and my plan's over here, and you're stuck over here. So, best-case scenario Abram never realizes God's plan for him. And really, worst case, I don't know that it's possible for humans to really mess up God's plan overall, but it may have delayed what God had intended. I got this timeline. Abram's a big part of this. If he chickens out, angels, we got to come up with something new here. Like, I don't think God really does that. But you can imagine it had the pivotal role Abram has in really 
world history? Man, if, he, if it's somebody else, Abram is going to be, be left out, clearly. The, the future that God had for him is never realized. His potential is never realized. And then it may kind of, we, God's got to do some shuffling here. i got somebody waiting in the wings. If you're not ready, I'm going to call in the understudy. The same thing with Paul. What if, what if Paul or Saul's what-ifs had kept him from fulfilling God's plan for his life? Just think how much Christianity would, would lack without half the New Testament. Like, what we know about Jesus, we know from the Gospels. That's great. It's sufficient for salvation. That's awesome. But what we can know even about faith in general, about spirituality in general, about Christianity in general, comes from Paul. Like, by a large margin, comes from his writing, his example, his ministry. Now, God may have and probably would have used somebody else, but Paul's going to miss out on being kind of the face of this movement post-Jesus. He's going to miss out on what God had for God's life. If you will just go push through this trap and push through the what-ifs, the uncertainty, it's amazing what's on the other side of those questions. It's amazing what your courage can fulfill in your life. Paul would have missed out on this opportunity for what God had for him had he allowed what-ifs to stop him, but he refused. Think culturally how the world might be different if someone like Thomas Edison had said, well, what if this light bulb thing doesn't really catch on? Like, what if this really, and again, it took him over a thousand different experiments to get it right. So what if after 600 of them, he's like, okay, I'm already getting laughed at enough. I'm already getting enough bad press. This is not going well. What if it just continues down this road 400 more times? I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with the expense and the, and the hurt. I can just do other things. I got other things in the works. We can, uh, this may have happened, maybe not for 100 years. We don't know what would have happened if someone even like him had said, what if? Think historically, and this is a big one to consider. It's one of those big life sort of what if questions. What if the allies in Europe had said in the late 30s, well, what if we can't stop Hitler? So let's not even bother. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Darkest Hour or not. If you haven't, you need to see it. It's incredible. It's about the first several weeks of Winston Churchill's reign, or uh, um, not reign. He's not a king. He's a prime minister. Uh, his rule as prime minister. And it's kind of showing that that transition, he's in that moment. Because the prime minister before him is willing to kind of play patty cake with Hitler. Okay, if we keep him happy, he won't destroy us. Like, if we just kind of, you know, are nice and do these different things, we'll be okay. And when he came in, he, he saw the danger. He said, nope, we cannot ask these what-ifs. We can't hold off anymore. He's like eating our, our country, our continent, and he's going for world domination. If we sit back too long and don't act, he will not be stopped. So just imagine if they had sat back and just twiddled their thumbs for five more years, ten more years. How much different might the world look if the allies had not said in the 30s and 40s, we don't know if we're going to be able to stop him, but we better try. What ifs can have a major effect, so we cannot stop them from realizing our full potential. The same thing with this church. There are many times where the what ifs were huge early on and even now there are still what ifs about the future of the church and how this is going to look and how that's going to turn out and what if this doesn't happen and what if this doesn't work the way we hope it will all the time and so we have not to this point and we cannot allow those what ifs for this church to keep us from realizing our full potential as a church 
Because we're not even five years in yet, so I feel like we're just now getting started and kind of even hitting the reset button with this new building of this last year. I feel like there's a lot of potential out there. I feel like there's a lot left to do, but what does that mean? See, right now, I'm talking about Genesis 2 and 3, but the reality is Genesis 12, 2 and 3. The reality is Genesis 12, 1. So if we want to get to 2 and 3, right, the potential and realizing that, we got to push through verse 1 and just go and I'll show you where to go. That's, that's what that means. Pushing through the what-ifs means uncharted territory. It means taking chances, taking risks, doing things that we maybe haven't done before, doing things we never thought of doing before, doing things we never thought we'd ever do. But for the future of this church to go on forward as God intends, it means pushing past the what-ifs. And it's the same for your life. You, the same what-ifs that you have are the, are the ones that you have to work through, have to deal with. What if this thing flops? And I would turn that and say, well, what if it takes off, but you never gave it a shot? What if I switch jobs and hate it? Well, what if a change of scenery is just what you need, and if you stay where you are, you're going to continue to be miserable and underutilized, but you never push through the what if to realize that truth? What if I'm vulnerable in relationships and I get hurt? Well, again, flip it. What if you are vulnerable and you find your BFF? What if you find that special someone, you give them your heart, there's a chance they are going to stomp on it into a million tiny pieces. Yes, there is a risk involved in that, but the reward is only found in pursuing despite the risk. What if the, op what if the best case scenario were to happen, but because we're so worried about worst case scenario, we never make a move and take a step forward? What if I try this new thing and it fails? And I would say, what if you tried it and it worked? What if you tried it and it was more successful than you could ever imagine? What if God's calling you to do something that seems a little crazy, a little left field here because he knows, hey, if they can push through the uncertainty and the what ifs, I've got something big for them on the other side. We've talked about Abram and Paul or Saul, but did you know that Jesus had what if moments? Now, some of them, we, I would just assume he had because he's fully God and fully man. So he still has the same, you know, sort of, thoughts that we would have, the same emotions that we have, and so there are times we, that aren't even recorded. He's probably sitting by himself, you know, late at night or early in the morning thinking, this is not going that great. Like, I came here to change the world, and I got 12 dudes that don't even know what they're doing. That's all I got. Like, seriously, this is what I have to work with, Dad? Are you kidding me? But we know there are at least two times where he has crucial what-if moments. The first is even before he begins his ministry, he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He has three opportunities to, what if? So Satan comes and says, hey, what if this doesn't work? And what if you did this instead? And what if I could offer you a better way out? What if I could offer you the easy way out? You wouldn't even have to do this whole dying for the world thing. I'll take it for you. I'll handle it for you, Jesus. Don't worry. I got it covered, okay? So Jesus had the opportunity three different times to give in to what ifs before his ministry started that would have ruined it, would have just... The whole plan, ain't over, done with, but he refused to give in those moments. And then at the very end of his ministry, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he's going to be handed over to be crucified. He has the what-if moment of all what-if moments because he is there by himself knowing what's about to happen. So imagine knowing that you know exactly when and how you're going to die. I would never want to have that information, ever. Like some people would say, well, then I could live my life how I want, and I could do all the things that I want to do, and I know exactly how much time I like. No, I do not want to know when the train's going to come and hit me. I do not want to know. I want to be surprised, like you should be. I don't know if I'm going to die like that, but I don't know. We'll just see. 
if you're reading the paper sometime soon, if you see me in downtown Parkville, stay away from the track, Stephen. Don't do it. I don't know. Um, but Jesus knew when and how he was going to die. He knew this information, and he's in there praying by himself, and he's saying, okay, God, I really would rather not. That's what he says. If there's any other way, take this cup from me. That is a what-if moment. He's like, okay, let's just cancel the plan. Let's call a timeout. Let's get a substitute in here like a stunt double Jesus because I really don't want to be crucified today or tomorrow. I don't want to do that. But yet he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's a what-if moment. And there's even one more I just thought of. He's on the cross, and he still has a what-if moment, right? And he's hanging there, suffocating to death, bleeding out, agony, torture, completely naked and open for all to see. And people are saying, yeah, come off the cross if you're really who you say you are. That's a what-if moment because he's like, you losers. Oh, I could, and I would kick your butt so hard right now. Like, if you knew who my dad was, you wouldn't be talking like that to me. You know, he's probably, if it, you know, never mind, I won't get into that. So he's got a what-if moment. He could have done that. Do you realize this, how wonderful your salvation is, how, how amazing this is, that he knew when and how he was going to die and for whom undeserving sinners, okay, me included, me the chief of them like Paul would say. And while he's there, he has the opportunity to sh show yourself. He's like, I dare you, Jesus. If you're so big and bad and you're the son of God, I dare you. I don't believe you otherwise. They're calling him out. He's dying, and they're calling him out. And that's a what-if moment, but he refused. He, he, gave him, he gave himself till the very end. So Jesus, and imagine, I mean, if defeating Hitler was a big deal, imagine if Jesus had given in in any of those moments. How different is everything going to be would everything have been if he's like, nah, it's not worth it, you know. They don't deserve it anyway, no big loss. Like, they've made Dad so mad, he won't really mind, not a huge problem, no big deal. If he had given in to those what-if moments, how different would everything in the universe be? That's how crucial what-if moments can be for you and for me. And so when it comes down to your life, maybe even spiritually, you're like, you know what, I haven't really completely committed because what if this thing really doesn't work out for me or you know what if my friends and family don't get that i'm i'm just you know completely sold out for jesus and i'm a freak and jesus freak and all what if they don't get it and i feel more alone now than ever and i would say well jesus actually answers that so he says hey when you become part of this group it's a family he says you've gained brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers multiple times over so what if you do commit to this thing like all in and find yourself surrounded by a community that really loves and cares for you nearly unconditionally things that your blood family would never do what if you what if that's the result instead of loneliness what if you find companionship what if you find community so we have again we we work through these worst case scenarios what if it doesn't work what if it does what if god doesn't come through what if he does? What if I pray really hard and really specific and full of faith and God doesn't happen to make it happen? Well, what if he does and you don't do it? And then he's like, he can't answer a prayer if it's not prayed. All right. So that's just not that's just you know, not how it works. So God's looking for people who will commit to pushing through the what ifs in your personal life, in your in your career, in your relationships, spiritually. He's looking for people who will push through the what ifs and say, okay, I can't 
predict the future. I don't know the outcome, but God, I'm going to trust you. That's, what, that's the power of faith. I have a limit to what I know. I have a limit to what I can know. I have a limit to my ability to make things happen, even on my best day. And so faith bridges that gap. Faith says, hey, you know what? I, I am going to pick up my tent and just go till God says stop. Hey, you know what? I am going to blindly wander into Damascus and just preach the good news all of a sudden, even if no one believes me, even if no one cares, even if no one's committed. Hey, I am going to give my life to Jesus. Hey, I am going to live for him. Hey, I am going to take a chance. Hey, I am going to do these things I never thought I was able or capable of doing because God can do what I cannot do. That's the power of faith. And so the power of the what if negates all of that. The power of the what if puts us on this this treadmill in life where nothing happens, nothing changes, nothing gets any better or worse. It just kind of stays the same, but really in the end it, it does get worse. We, I want us to realize our full potential through faith by wor- walking through, working through this trap of what if. So avoid this trap by living through faith and see what God will do in your life.